0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number three, William Miller, part two. Last week, we met William Miller and traced his trail through deism and war to the point where he finally considered himself a Christian. The road was long and stable and represented a gradual climb rather than some steep epiphanies but he had arrived. Today, we're going to see how the Christian world was about to be rocked by this new believer. We ended with the hint that at the end of years of studying the Bible to reconcile its various passages and to understand it, Miller came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to return on or before 1843. For Miller, it meant that the world as we knew it would end. Everyone on planet Earth would see Jesus and the saved would be taken to heaven while the evil people would be sent to hell. So long and thanks for all the fish. Miller obviously hasn't been the first person to predict when Jesus would return, and he hasn't been the last. A preacher named Harold Camping picked October 21st, 2011 as the date the world would end. It hit the news cycle for a while and fizzled out. No one really took it seriously except perhaps his handful of followers. That's how we treat such predictions today. But the reaction to Miller's prediction was very, very different. I won't bother you with all the theological reasoning that went behind Miller's conclusion, but you should at least know the primary verse that propelled him. It's in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 8, and verse 14, which reads this, "...Unto two thousand and three hundred days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed." It may not sound like much to go on to you and me, but Miller pointed out that in Bible prophecy, a day is coded for a year. So, 2,300 days are really 2,300 years. All he had to do was figure out when this prophecy began, and he'd find out when it ends. Simple. It turned out that it ended, according to his calculations, in 1843. The cleansing of the sanctuary he took to refer to the second coming of Jesus. To Miller and others, it was that simple. In the common sense area of Jacksonian politics, simple explanations of the Bible were greatly valued. Even the common man could do the math and understand this passage. You didn't need a Harvard PhD or your own TV channel to understand this stuff. At first he kept it to himself, thinking that since he was rather new to this whole Bible thing, there might be an explanation that he had missed. He spent five years studying this issue from the Bible, trying to understand all possible objections to see if his theory was sound. He would read until he came across a verse that contradicted his idea, and he would later claim that, quote, more objections arose in my mind than have been advanced by my opponents since. In every area of his life, William Miller was careful. But the longer he sat with this, the more he grew to feel that if his ideas were true, then it'd be criminal not to tell people. I mean, if you thought the world was ending... In a few years, wouldn't you tell people? He honestly thought that all Christians would rejoice, but he managed to stifle this conviction by telling himself that he needed to keep studying to be sure. After those five years, in 1823, he knew he had no choice but to go forward. So Miller began, as anyone begins with a new idea, to privately pitch it to friends and neighbors to see what they thought. Miller was not very encouraged by their reaction. He looked in vain to find a preacher who might agree with him and take the burden of preaching this message away from him. He wanted to pass the baton to someone more experienced and go back to his life. Up until this point, Miller had led a pretty respectable life. Christians and deists alike praised his character and work ethic and the careful consideration he gave to all his views. Sure, he had enjoyed making fun of Christians back in the day, but that had never stopped the Baptist church in Low Hampton from allowing him to preach. So long as someone else wrote the sermon. But this view of Jesus coming back in 1843 was beginning to seem like it'd be unpopular and strange. It cut across the whole grain of who Miller had been so far. He was fair, balanced, not prone to extremes, and this idea was threatening all of that. Do you know who proclaims that the world is ending on a certain date? crazy people, people who want attention, sad, deluded people. That's the kind of person who says something like this. And Miller could see that and where all this would head, and the idea of trading his respectable intellectual gentleman hat for that of a public fool was not very appealing. As he began to tell his neighbors, a doctor who lived in Miller's neighborhood made the comment that Miller was, quote, "...a fine man and a good neighbor," But was a monomaniac on the subject of the advent, end quote. So Miller decided to have some fun with this, and when one of his children ended up sick, he called the doctor over. The child was treated, but when the doctor noticed that Miller was quiet, he suspected that something might be wrong with him too. When asked for his symptoms, Miller replied, quote, I don't know, but I am a monomaniac, and I want you to examine me and see if I am, and if so, cure me, Can you tell when a man is a monomaniac? The doctor reportedly blushed, but insisted that he could. A monomaniac, said the doctor, is rational on all subjects but one, and when you touch that particular subject, he will become raving. Miller insisted that the doctor sit with him for two hours while he explained his view on the second coming. He even told the doctor that he could bill him, because he was there to examine his mental health. The doctor seemed reluctant, but agreed. And Miller walked the doctor inductively through the book of Daniel until the doctor himself did the same math and arrived at 1843. The doctor left in a rage, though he returned the next day to express that he felt himself in agony because he wasn't ready for Jesus to come. The doctor returned every day that week to talk with Miller until he felt that he was ready and went on his way excited. He had become, Miller noted, a monomaniac himself. But Miller still couldn't find any preachers to catch on, so he told God that public speaking wasn't really his thing and that he didn't have the qualifications or a church or any such thing that would guarantee that people would listen. For eight years, he confined himself to telling a person here and there, maintaining his cover as a decent chap in society. But he was increasingly torn between the message needing to get out and him wanting to stay inside his comfort zone. Finally, he compromised. He decided that he would write a series of articles for the Vermont Telegraph, a Baptist paper. He wrote 16 such articles, which appeared starting in May of 1832, but there was a problem. You see, Miller wanted these articles to be published under the initials W.M., but the editor wanted a name. Miller told him his name, thinking that it was only for the paper's records or something. So you can imagine Miller's surprise when he discovered his full name printed next to the first article. The articles eventually brought him a much bigger audience than preaching would have. God won, Miller zero. And God was just getting started. Before the articles hit the fan, Miller, fed up with his burden that he should spread the word about Jesus' arrival, finally cut a deal with God in the summer of 1831. Miller said that if he were invited to preach about this, he would, but that he wouldn't seek out an invitation. With that said, he felt better. Seriously, nearly everyone he talked to thought he was crazy anyway. If people wouldn't listen to him in private, what lunatic would invite him to talk to people about his crazy beliefs in public? It turns out that that lunatic was already on his way to Miller's house. For a half hour after Miller made his deal with God, a boy arrived asking him to preach about the second coming at church. Miller was furious he felt trapped. He left the boy where he was and stormed off into a little grove and argued vociferously with God for an hour before finally finding peace in preaching. What the boy thought of all of this, who can say? But we can say that when he went and spoke the next Sunday, it was such a success that he was invited back the next week. And when he preached that time, several people were persuaded. Upon returning home, some 16 miles from the church, he found an invitation to preach at another church. Miller never had a Sunday's peace after that. God, too. Miller, zero. Things began to unfold for Miller. A novice preacher named Hendricks heard rumors of this heretic in Hampton and took it upon himself to go scout it out. Hendricks was warned about Miller, but found that no brother ever dealt with me more tenderly than Miller. Asked what his belief was about the millennium of Revelation 20, Hendricks bluntly told Miller that his was the old view of the world's conversion, a thousand years before the advent. Well, said Miller, prove it. You know I want Bible for all that I receive. Hendricks went home, summoned an army of Bible verses, and brought it back to Miller. Brother Hendricks, Miller exclaimed, what has become of your old theory? This is mine. Well, said Hendricks, it is mine too. Right or wrong about prophecy, there was no evidence that Miller was in this for himself. Until the very end, he seemed reluctant to share his ideas with anyone. Even more so after the few pastors he did share them with rejected them. It wasn't until 1836 that he even received any money, and even then, it was only a dollar. In 1845, after all of this was over, he said that he had never received enough money to cover even one of his speaking engagements. He estimated that he had spent some $2,000 of his own money overall, which is about $60,000 today. Numerous newspaper accounts of him described him as sincere, even if few agreed with him. One editor wrote that, quote, no one can hear him five minutes without being convinced of his sincerity. Sincerity doesn't mean he was right, of course, but it's important that we don't become too cynical. There's a difference between the charlatans in it make a quick buck and those who are truly sincere, if sincerely wrong. But of course Seventh-day Adventists would argue that Miller was right in most of what he said, that he fundamentally understood the prophetic principles at play here and interpreted the timing correct, just not the correct event that they were foretelling. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Miller's message gave him clarity. If Jesus were returning soon, then maybe all these inter-Christian arguments didn't matter so much. Many of the people who came to follow him were people from all sorts of churches. Miller didn't emphasize many doctrinal fine points. He wasn't here to create a new church on his own. There wasn't time to argue about the little stuff. He even chafed when someone applied the title of reverend to him, telling the man to look in his Bible for such a title being applied to a sinner such as himself. He was under fire from some clergy, and sometimes he could shrug off the criticism, but at other times it got to him. It was difficult to shoulder the load alone. Then came Joshua V. Himes. Himes attended the first Christian church in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was part of the Christian Connection. Later, as a pastor, he rose in prominence in this Christian Connection group, The connection was part of the Restorationist mood in America at this time, to try and get back to the good old days of the early Christian church. They despised creeds and upheld the Reformation principle of Sola Scriptura. They also hated large church organizational structures, arguing that they were foreign to the early church. Himes worked hard in the areas of education, temperance, that is, campaigning against alcohol and tobacco and other harmful substances, women's rights, health reform, world peace, and the abolition of slavery. It was not really popular to be against slavery at this juncture, and while Himes and his friends saw slavery as an unjust practice, their goal was to end practices of sin so that the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth might commence. It was due to his views in slavery that split his church in two. The more progressive members of his church left to form another and took him along as pastor. On theological matters, Himes was, by their standards, a super-conservative. On certain social issues, he was liberal. Himes bucked the stereotype then, and he was only getting started. He met William Miller in 1839, when Miller came to speak to about 20 Christian Connectionist ministers in Exeter, Massachusetts. Hymes invited Miller to come speak at his church in Boston, which he did in December. Afterward, Himes asked Miller if he really believed this stuff. Miller said, certainly I do, or I would not preach it. The discussion unfolded, with Himes marveling that if the world was to end in four years, then why was the word being confined to northern New England? Miller had to get the message out further. Miller had come to that conclusion long ago, but he had no answers. He was only one man, after all. He complained that plenty of people want him to come and speak, and many accept it and thank him, but few actually go beyond that to help him. Miller said, I have been looking for help. I want help. Himes signed up. He told Miller to get ready to hit all the big cities in the Union for, quote, I am coming on, and when I come, look out, all my soul will be in it. That may be, but the truth is that even though Himes helped Miller, he didn't buy into the fact that Jesus would come in 1843 until the summer of 1842. But that didn't stop him from trumpeting Miller's name through all sorts of articles. He even started a paper for the purpose of spreading Miller's views called Signs of the Times. The Seventh-day Adventist Church publishes a magazine of the same name today, but they're not the same, just for your information. Science was an interesting adventure, because through it, Himes actually published opinions for Miller and against him. Perhaps it reflected Himes' own reservations at first, or perhaps it was part of Himes' devious plan to draw more attention to a neutral paper rather than to a partisan one. Either way, the anti-Miller stuff slowly faded. Himes and Miller were a serious team. Miller kept preaching and Himes transformed him from an ex-farmer on his soapbox into a social movement. Without Himes, Miller would have been a very, very small footnote in religious history. The message was fine-tuned and Miller was kept in circulation all over the place. Signs of the Times launched in March of 1840. By July, they had 800 subscribers. By October, they had a 1,000 By January of the next year, they had 5,000 subscribers and 50,000 readers. Himes was a media genius. He started to pay readers $0.20, or what might be the equivalent of $4.44 today, for everyone that they could convince to subscribe. When they entered a new city, Himes would start a new local paper for a few weeks and, after the meetings were over, close it down and merge all of those subscribers with signs. Papers popped up everywhere. One was for women, one was for scholars, and on and on. Heim sold a Second Advent library of dozens of books considered essential for the learned Christian to own. He also published a book of Second Advent hymns. His enemies called Joshua v. Heim's The Napoleon of the Press. Another prominent Millerite, Josiah Litch, claimed in 1843 that they had given out more than four million pieces of literature. That's not bad, considering that only 2.2 million people lived in New England at the time. By 1844, that was about one for every four people in the United States. Joshua Himes also started hosting conventions for all of those following Miller to get together in Boston. Think Comic-Con, but nothing like that. Still, it was a good networking opportunity and fired people up to go back and spread the word. Prominent clergymen attended, and, to be fair, many didn't share Miller's whole 1843 thing. But many came because they believed Jesus was coming soon, not that they thought they could predict that year or day. It was at conferences such as these that the movement took on a more stable and respectable tone. Committees were set up, and other people took control of some aspects of the organization. In other words, Millerism had become bigger than Miller. There were certainly critics of Miller and Himes and Litch and all of the rest. Other preachers continued to rail against them, and newspapers poked fun as well. They even received death threats from time to time. Himes, true to form, started publishing some of the more ridiculous things people sent him under a new section of Signs of the Times called Liar's Department. Still, the movement kept steamrolling. Josiah Litch left his Methodist ministry... Miller's teachings weren't exactly opposed to most official church teachings because Miller was focused on a single issue that all Christians more or less believed in one form or another, but there was a difference of emphasis. A Millerite committee picked Litch up, and he became their first full-time preacher. It was more common than it is now for pastors of different churches to invite each other to speak, and Litch found Baptists and Methodists who would let him come and preach at their churches. And so the movement went on. More and more preachers grabbed onto the message, and among them were even some women and black individuals who carried it forward. Time was getting short, and the shorter the time became, the more energetic the Millerites pushed for people to get ready for Jesus to come. 1840 gave way to 1841, and then 1842, and then, at last, 1843. Twenty-five years had passed since Miller had first come to the conclusion that Jesus was to come soon. He had been preaching actively for about ten of those years, and the time had finally come. Miller addressed the faithful on New Year's Day, January 1, 1843, that this should be the very last year in history. He sought to encourage the faithful to press on while keeping his eyes on the reality that his cause had attracted conspiracy theorists and other fanatics who would march in his name but sing a very different tune. This was also the first day that Miller put forth a specific range of dates for the second coming. Up until this point, he had simply said that Jesus would come about the year 1843. Now he was more specific, offering 15 proofs for why Jesus would come between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. But that's as far as he ever went. He never set up a specific date beyond picking that year. The date was never particularly important anyway. What inspired people was that many Christians were looking forward to a millennium of peace before the second coming. Miller had come announcing that Jesus would come before the millennium, and thus people needed to get themselves right with God now. The sense of urgency, the call to action, was what resonated with people. That was what shook them out of their complacency and got them fired up. Himes even wrote in 1840 that it was possible that they were mistaken about the year. It may vary a few years, he wrote, but we are persuaded that the end cannot be far distant. And if we're to understand Miller and his movement, we have to understand this fact. There was a specific time predicted by Miller and others, yes, but it wasn't even shared by all the leaders in the movement. Even those who did buy into it didn't bet everything on it. The novelty of Miller and his message was that just as so many other Christians thought a golden age was upon them, Miller taught that the world's destruction was at hand. Most thought Jesus couldn't come for at least another thousand years. Could he really be on his way? The date helped make the message real, however, for some folks. It wasn't just an idea in the sky, it was on their calendars that they glanced at every day. And in 1843, Miller was at the peak of his popularity. When posters announced that he would speak in Washington, D.C., over 5,000 people came. There was even a special section for members of Congress. The problem was that it was a hoax. Miller wasn't even in town. In an anticlimactic turn, Miller was even sick for half the year and couldn't preach. Still, the message went on. Perhaps it was good for Miller to be sick, as every organization must at some point mature to the point where the founder has to come to grips with the fact that he's no longer necessary. The work had trouble going into the South in particular, where slave owners saw Millerites as abolitionists and wouldn't give them the time of day. A certain Joseph Bates, who we shall hear about later, went South anyway. A Methodist leader threatened to ride him on the rail, to which Bates asked if he could have a saddle, because he'd rather ride than walk. Still, where a human messenger couldn't go, the printed word did. Miller became a hot topic in 1843. Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and John Greenleaf Whittier all made mention of him. Even the great preacher Charles Finney tried to fix what he saw as Miller's errors, but to no avail. Joseph Smith, prophet and founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormons, was surprised to learn that some of his followers were leaning towards Miller as well. Toward that end, Smith revealed to the faithful that the Lord had told him that he will not return in 1843. If only Miller had thought to ask Jesus in the first place when he was planning on coming back, this whole thing could have been so much easier. Ads popped up here and there, trading in on the whole world-is-ending thing to sell a few more products. The Journal of American Insanity, yes, that's a real thing, accused thousands of Millerites for being deranged, that this was a greater calamity in the journal's words than yellow fever or cholera. Others spread the rumor that Miller and the others had special ascension robes that they would wear for the second coming. Certain ministers and other denominations were refused ordination on the sole basis that they believed Jesus would come soon. As the time came closer, these Millerites grew more and more earnest about people making decisions for Jesus. The more they entreated, the more the resistance grew towards them. Miller had not intended on setting up his own church. That seemed kind of silly in light of the second coming. But the more established denominations came down on those who believed in Miller's ideas, the more his followers began to turn to each other for spiritual comfort and instruction. Naturally, that led to those Christians meeting together in ways that resembled church. The call to come out of Babylon was raised by some, and many left their traditional churches for the sake of Miller's movement. This is no small thing. Church was a very big part of American society at this juncture, critical to being thought of as a good and respectable person. To leave those churches is to risk your social status and, according to some, even your salvation by following after this old farmer. Miller, to the end, didn't like the call for people to leave their churches if they could help it. He would later call it a perversion of scripture to liken these Protestant churches to Babylon. To him, this was one of the worst things that had happened to the movement. In January of 1844, there were only a few months left by Miller's calculations. He estimated that he had delivered some 4,500 lectures to 500,000 people over the past 12 years. Millions of printed materials had gone out, too, largely in the past three years. It's important that you put yourself in their shoes at this time. Imagine the excitement in the air. If you were certain that Jesus was coming back within three months, imagine the fence-mending that you'd be doing, who you'd seek out to apologize to, and who you'd make sure you told you loved them. Imagine how your priorities would change. Would you still go out to that movie? Would you still go into work that next week? Would you still flirt with that girl next door? The belief that Jesus was coming in a matter of weeks had a profound impact on the Millerites. Wrong they might have been about the time but it did produce among some of them a wonderful passion to do the things human beings often lack the courage to do in easier times. Be that as it may, on March 14th, one week before the deadline, Miller returned home to his wife in Lowhampton to wait. Himes was hopeful, but made plans, if time continues, to keep spreading the word. March 21st came, and Miller noted how he, quote, expected every moment to see the Savior descend from heaven. End quote. We'll leave Miller waiting and you with the cliffhanger. Will Jesus come? Will the world end in 1844? I guess you'll have to stay tuned for our next episode, where we will see if there ever was a March 22, 1844. <laughs> Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is history Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, I we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at avenishistoryproject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear,